And welcome to another episode of the Fundamentals Podcast. I am your host, Harley. Joining me for the first ever episode of 2022, it's host of the Proper Mental Podcast, Tom Davies. Tom was kind enough to hop onto the show and share with me his love for one of the biggest bands in music history, and that is Oasis. Making their debut in 1994, Oasis very quickly took the world by storm. They became one of the biggest bands you'd ever seen, with millions upon millions of records sold, sellout shows, and some pretty interesting behind-the-scenes antics to go along with it. We get into the band's history, the discography, live events, and so much more. This is one of those conversations where I feel like we get to talk about the impact that music can have on the world, as well as a band's legacy and where they're at now and and what it means to kind of sometimes just leave things said and done. It's a truly fascinating conversation and it's with one of the nicest people I've ever spoken to. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. So without further ado, let's just get straight into it. This is Oasis with Tom Davies. Hello, Tom, and welcome to the Fundamentals podcast. I am, mate. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, pleasure's all mine. So, Tom, you have brought us another great musical topic, and yours today is the band Oasis. Yes, mate. Um, so for me, I, I was going to say up top, this is something I don't know a lot about. It's a band that kind of passed me by. So I'm really actually excited and curious to learn all about this. So to take, uh, I guess to kick us off then, Tom, what was your int- introduction to the band? Well, I was, um, I was a teenager in the 90s. So that's like the perfect time to mm-hmm. be fall in love with a band. And obviously at that time, they were the biggest band on the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, and then because they were kind of around for so long, they kind of soundtracked loads of different moments of my life as well. So they've kind of always been with me. Um, oh, I wouldn't say that, weirdly, they're not my favourite band. Like, if I had to pick one band to listen to for the rest of my life, it wouldn't be them. But they probably had the most, like, cultural impact on on me as a person and on my life at that time and and those sorts of things. Um, So, yeah, it was just kind of like everyone else in that brief period in the 90s was just swept away on on that wave of Oasis when they took over the world. Yeah. So did you remember like the first song or, or EP? Or was it just something on the radio that kind of caught your ear? Yeah. You see, when they, when they blew up, which would have been like 94, I was a little bit young to be like reading the NME and Q magazine and stuff like that. I would have been about 12 or 13 in 93, 94. So I kind of missed that, that massive spike where they just came from nowhere and decimated everything. It was more probably with the second album when kind of like Wonderwall was everywhere that Mm. would have been when they could have caught my attention um but i remember um 
uh, a mate of mine had Morning Glory on cassette and I used to listen to it um, doing my paper round in the mornings. So when I'd be off putting papers through people's doors in all weathers, I'd have, uh, I'd just have that album on repeat just over and over and over again. Nice. And that was when they kind of like seeped into my, uh, into my consciousness, I suppose. That's definitely, a, yeah, a, a way to soundtrack that. It's quite a formative, <laughs> formative time, I, I would have thought. Because um, yeah. I'm just having a little look through their back castle, because I've never looked into this before, but um, according to what I've got here, it looks like, yeah, their first album would have been around 94, and then they went up to like 2008, sometime around then. So it's, it's one of those bands, kind of like the Beatles, kind of like other topics we've had before, where you almost feel like they've been around for a lot longer. But when you look at that span, you're like, oh, that's quite short. That's like within a decade. They just kind of come in, have blown the doors off of, I don't know, the world, musically speaking, and then just disappear. And I yeah. mean, yeah, that's, I just get into it then. So like, what was what was sort of like your favourite album then, I guess? I mean, it sounds like, uh, what was it you said just a second ago? Sorry, I'm <laughs> yeah, not familiar more... with the discography. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, Morning Glory, that was the first one Morning I heard. Okay. Yeah, I want to, you see, different ones have been different have been different favorites at different times. Like right. that was their big seller and they've never sort of yeah. top, top that. But at the same time, I oh, I don't know, man. I think that's quite weak compared to some of the others listening now. I don't think it's, I don't think it's aged very well. You know, I think really, it, it, yeah, I think it, it smacks of Britpop. Um, whereas, whereas <laughs> some of the others are a bit more um, uh, like definitely maybe the debut, I think it's a bit more classic sound to it. So rather than being a sound of its time, it's more of a guitar band sound that probably has stayed the course a little bit better. So if pushed, I'd probably go for um, definitely maybe, but oh, I don't, yeah, I couldn't pick. It's like asking me to choose between my children, Harley, you know, I couldn't, uh, <laughs> I couldn't quite manage it. No, that's that's fair enough. I mean, they do seem like, I'm just looking at some of these songs now, because I recognise stuff like, yeah, Rock and Roll Star, Wonderwall, um, Cigarettes, Alcohol, that stuff. Like, you're right, uh, what you said a second ago, it was like a, a soundtrack to a generation. And that kind of Britpop sound, I feel like these are one of those bands that really championed a new sound for Britain. Do you think that's kind of part of the reason why they became such a massive band in the 90s? It was just like sort of a sound of a generation. Yeah, I think so. I think like culturally, the UK was ready for it. You right. know, like if you think like the probably the biggest band around before Oasis came out was probably Nirvana. Yeah. And I think for British people, that was quite hard to relate to. I mean, I'm a, I love Nirvana. I still listen to Nirvana now regularly. Oh, same but, here. <laughs> um, yeah, they're a great, great band. But I think in the in that sort of time, you know, it was hard to relate to Kurt Cobain if you lived particularly in the UK. Yeah. Because they're very American, you know, in the way that they dressed and, um, you know, and the, even the, the, the mindset, you know, like I think the last single Nirvana put out was... Um, called I Hate Myself and Want to Die. And then six months after that, Oasis released a song that's like, I want to live forever. You know, like it's the complete opposite. Yeah. Um, and it tied in well with that Britpop movement. And, you know, everyone in like, I don't know, the whole world seemed to revolve around London and New Labour coming into power after years of conservative rule. There was like this real like working class positivity in the air and the, all these different things all kind of came together at once. Union Jack's all over the place and, you know, like it, it just really, yeah, I think a lot of things dropped into place at once at the right time. I, like those generational bands, that tends to be yeah. what happens, doesn't it? There's a few factors all at the same time that just paved the way for something to explode. Yeah, 
Uh, it makes a lot of sense because I mean, I I do know this at the core of it. It's two brothers from Manchester, you know, that come from that very working class background, and it seems that yeah, a lot of their songs and a lot of their imagery and just who they are as people is is very much rooted in that. So it kind of makes sense if if you're listening to that sort of music and maybe perhaps you feel like you can identify in some way, like you as a young lad pedaling around on your bike, you almost these people don't feel like they're a million miles away, like some American rock stars. They're just like, no, these are just guys. They're like me, you know. Exactly that. Mm. Yeah, exactly that. They just look like the sort of, um, like the older lads that used to kind of like knock around on my estate and stuff like that, you know. They right. kind of wore the same sort of clothes that me and my mates wore and, you know, those sorts of things. It was really, really um, accessible. And I think as well, the, the big thing for me was that they, they, uh, they were kind of like a crossover band for music. So if you go back to kind of like the early 90s and you don't get it so much now, but music used to be really, um, really tribal, you know, and you kind of you had the music you're into and everyone dressed like it. Yeah. And you could like look around, the look around a, a school, like a, a dinner room or something. And you'd be like, right, there's the kids who like metal. There's yeah. the kids who go skateboarding. Mm. There's the kids who like hip hop. And everything was really, really separate. And you couldn't like all the lads who were really into heavy metal, they never came and played football with us. You know, mm. like it was just, it wasn't a thing. You know, you either played guitar or you played football. And then Oasis came out and they liked football and they played guitar, you know? And yeah. they, it was like, you could wear a, a tracksuit top, an Adidas top and Adidas trainers, but also have a guitar. <laughs> you know, mm. like it was like a, it was just kind of blurred the edges of these really strict divides that you would see at that time in youth culture, I always thought. That's a really interesting point. I never would have considered Oasis as being part of that because you're right. I mean, that's something I've, um, I feel you're correct. Like it's, it's become less and less of a thing. I think because especially now we have, especially as young people, we have access to so much music that it's, um, it would almost be silly to be tribal over stuff because you could flip around with different genres you know, like week to week, whereas as you, like you said, I'm not, I'm not too far away from your generation of like, yeah, that time you just had CDs and you're like, well, these are the collection that I've gone and I've got and I've sought these out. So this is going to be my thing. This is, these are going to be my people. I can't listen to anything else. But I suppose, yeah, something like Oasis comes along. It's so popular that it almost like transcends that in a yeah. way. Yeah, definitely. It allowed the kind of cool kids to be a bit more geeky and the geeky kids to be a bit more cool or yeah, <laughs> some sort of, yeah. you know, there was like a little blend in, in between, you know, there was something really, uh, but then at the same time, you know, the two Gallagher brothers are, you know, they're like fighting each other and fighting paparazzi <laughs> and stuff like that. But then they'd like bring out songs like Wonderwall as well. So it was also a, a, like, again, going back to that tribal youth, you know, I went to a, um, a high school that was very, very tribal. It was a, a rough school. It was a, mm. it, it took some navigating, you know, and <laughs> you, you had to kind of, you had to have this front to survive it. And, you know, you had someone like Noel Gallagher, who was quite aggressive at times and, you know, very drunk and doing drugs and fighting cameramen and stuff. And then he was writing all these like love songs as well, you know. So mm. as, a, as like a young boy, it kind of suddenly opens you up to, oh, hang on, you know, like this whole masculinity thing this whole macho thing it's not just about like pretending to be hard all the time you are allowed to have this soft side so it kind of you know them being like having that laddie element to them but also having that romantic element to them as well that was another it just kind of it's just something a bit different it just blurred the lines between what things had always been like before that i think hmm interesting i mean speaking of 
the kind of antics and stuff. I, I wonder what you sort of think about it now, almost like looking back on it. Because I feel like this was a, perhaps something that maybe put people off. I, I will hold my hands up. This is something that's put me off giving them a chance before is seeing them in interviews and being like, ah, not, don't, don't like that. But then I've had this conversation with a few people before about this, like separating art from artists. And sometimes you need to do that. I mean, what, what do you think with, uh, with Liam? Yeah. And yeah. I mean, I always quite liked it. I okay. was quite, I kind of like, I love the mythology of rock and roll. You know, I like yeah. the stories. I like the, you know, I like reading the books about all the stuff that used to go on, you know, all the craziness right. around the music and things like that. And yeah, I quite, you see it all the time. Sometimes with like footballers, people like Ronaldo or yeah. um, in the UFC, Conor McGregor, you know, those really like confident to the point of arrogant. Mm. And it just separates people, doesn't it? And it is Marmite. People either love them or hate them but either way they're talking about them and that adds to the hype that adds to the adds to the myth but I always quite liked it because I like I said when I was at school and you know you're a young lad and you're trying to find your tribe and um, I've always been quite an anxious person I've always been quite a worrier and I'd always be very particularly around that time I was really worried about what people would think of me and it was all about trying to trying to fit in and trying to you know navigate that sort of stuff and then Liam Gallagher comes along and he genuinely didn't care yeah. <laughs> about anything or anyone and it would be like wow I wish I could have a little bit of Liam Gallagher you know mm. and you kind of got the impression with him that it wasn't an act like I would imagine if you just kind of like put a hidden camera in his house and he was all on his own and didn't know you were filming. He'd probably still walk like that and talk like that and wear a parka and, you know, all that. It was really authentic. And I, I always kind of liked that, that stuff. And I think as well, like, in society, and I don't want to get too into the mental health side of things, <laughs> but in society we're always told that we're less than. You know, we're always told, how many times have you done something you're really, really proud of and you go to tell someone and you start that conversation by going, oh, I don't mean to boast, but, or yeah. I've done this thing and, oh, it's probably not that good. We always downplay it. It's all, yeah. We always do. It's just in us. And we're bombarded by advertising that tells us we're not good enough because that makes us spend money to try and be good enough. It's really like culturally, we're not supposed to say these things about ourselves. And then you have yeah. these two, two lads that came out of nowhere and like, yeah, we're the best band in the world. And then everyone bought their records and they were, you know, and then Noel Gallagher would say, I wrote the best song in the world. And it was Wonderwall and it went number one all over the world. And it was the best song in the world. So you couldn't really argue with him, you know, and I kind of, I always admired it because I couldn't, I couldn't, that's not in me, that kind of, that confidence, that arrogance, that attitude. Um, but yeah, I always quite liked it, but yeah, it's good fun. As long as, as long as it's not hurting anyone, it's quite good fun. You know, I, I like it. I like it in Ronaldo and I like it in Conor McGregor as well. So maybe it's just me. <laughs> I don't know. Do you know, I'd not considered it from that angle before, actually, especially the whole, as you say, being down, downtrodden. It's almost like, you, you know, having nothing left to lose, kind of just being like, look, we come from nothing. All we've got is, you know, this song and that's it. And it's just us and take it or leave it, basically, you know, yeah. we love it. We're happy with it. And yeah, maybe that's, I don't mean, like you said, they're successful. So I don't know. I'm always on the fence about stuff like that. I'm like, I don't think you need to be obnoxious to be successful. <laughs> no, not at all. But, not at all. But yeah, like maybe you're right. Maybe a little bit of, of belief in yourself at the very least is required. And if they've got it in bucket loads, then I guess fair enough. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm just looking uh, yeah. here in Oasis. Uh, the Wonderwall song has been streamed. I think that's a billion streams I can see there. And that's <laughs> one song. So it's like, 
I mean, it's done all right, isn't it? Okay, then, yeah. I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, you know, yeah, it is a funny one. And I can see, I can see why it, like, divides people. Mm. Um, I, I don't know, like, I always found it really funny. Like, even to this day, like, I, I don't necessarily listen to this band very often at all, you know. Um, right. That, you know, they just, they, they, I don't need to. They're in my DNA. I listen to it that much. I, I like, you could put a record on now and I could... I could whistle you the guitar solos and the outros and the fills and everything. I just know it. Mm. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily listen to them. But if they're on a, if there's a program on about them, I'll watch it. If they're on the front cover of Mojo, I'll buy that issue, you know, cause I'm still interested in what they've got to say and how they say it. Cause I, I just found, I find them interesting, very funny. They don't get enough credit for how funny they are. Them two brothers. Mm. Um, but yeah, they are very Marmite, I suppose, but it's quite interesting actually what's happened to, more with Liam Gallagher because he's yeah. now taken up this mantle. He's a bit of a national treasure now, Liam Gallagher. He's kind of come full circle. You know, he, people are quite fond of him. Mm. I think people are seeing a different side to him as he's got a bit older and calmed down a little bit and his his songs are doing pretty well. But um, he, he seems to, you know, he's back on people's radar in a bit of a different way. People seem to be taken to him slightly differently, but he does have a national yeah. treasure vibe to him, I think. I think you're right because I was listening to... Um, uh, Give them a shout out. I give them shout outs all the time, so why not? Um, <laughs> I was listening to Skip to the End, and um, Mark was talking about that about how Liam is doing a lot of the tours now, and yeah, he's got his own solo stuff, but he's you know understandably leaning heavily in his set list on Oasis songs, and they work as crowd pleasers. Mm. And he was saying that like you kind of have to respect that in a way of like just going out there and just kind of going, do you know what? This is what you want to hear, so we're going to do it and we're going to have a bit of fun with it. And I, I watched a couple of um, live performances after he said that. And I thought, yeah, do you know, I can see that. I can see that he's just quite happy to go out there and just be like, yeah, this is what you want. Um, fair enough. Here it is. Enjoy yourselves. And I think you're right. That kind of becomes a bit more endearing then because people yeah. kind of just like, oh, good. You're playing the songs that we want to hear and you're not being too pompous about it. But at the same time, I've always looked at Noel from an artist's point of view as being quite interesting because I, I do like also seeing what else someone else is capable of. And I do feel out of the two is again, this is my peripheral knowledge, but what I've heard musically is I, I do feel like Noel seems like a bit of the stronger songwriter at times. Cause a lot of his solo stuff, I think if you stack the two together for me anyway, I feel like Noel's is a bit better put, you know, written than produced. Not saying Liam's is bad. I mean, he's still a good songwriter, but, yeah, I don't know. I feel like it's interesting that they've now gone their two separate ways almost. But yeah, you're right. It seems to have come a little bit more full circle for them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Is uh, I think Liam on his on Liam solo stuff. I think there's a, he has a few writers. I don't think it's all him. Uh, yeah, I think he has a bit of a team. Um, sure. Whereas Noel, I think, is still very much um, just doing his thing, and he has got a bit more mm. experimental. Noel Gallagher does this thing right that I've noticed that he's probably. He's probably done it before every album since Be Here Now and all his solo stuff. Okay. Whereas when an album's coming out, he does all these interviews where he's saying like, oh, it's this, this time, you know, I've gone, I've been listening to all this stuff and I'm on this, this jazz trip and it's going to be like psychedelic space funk, but crossed with the Beatles. And he always says these like things that it comes out 
and you know exactly what you're getting. Yeah. Exactly what you're getting. You know, the same is the same ballad that's the same chords as Wonderwall, just in a different order with a different strumming pattern. <laughs> and, you know, he might have used a drum machine instead of a drummer or something like that. But yeah. on the whole, you know exactly what you're getting. And that, it's, it's good. Like I said, I don't really listen to the records that much now. Mm. I think Noel's stuff is fine, but it's not yeah. really my, my cup of tea, you know. But you know exactly what you're getting. And I'd say with both of them, I bet when they bring music out, I bet the it'll be similar as people like the Stones or Elton John or all these like massive artists. The no the new record will sell, but the tickets will really sell, and they'll always yeah. sell more gig tickets than they will records because everyone just wants to hear the hits. You don't go to the, watch the Rolling Stones and want to hear any of the anything from like you know past about eighty three onwards. Mm. <laughs> you know you want yeah. Street Fighting Man, and that's it, isn't it? You know. And I think Oasis are the same. And Liam's just like you say, he's given the people what they want and, you know, yeah. more power to him, isn't it? More power to him. Yeah. And I, I feel like it's taken them a bit of time to come to peace with that, you know. And I, and I often wonder, say, you know, what we were saying a minute ago about the personalities and the arrogance and everything. I have been reflecting on it today, especially leading up to this conversation and thinking like, well, in fairness, I don't know how I'd handle it if, you know, I wrote a song and all of a sudden it had like a billion streams or whatever like that's it's especially in their era in the 90s you know when you were a successful band you were everywhere you know and i can't Most imagine dumb. what that must have been like for them coming from like humble beginnings to suddenly like you're selling out stadiums and arenas it must have just been like how how do you cope with that you know <laughs> yeah definitely and you know they you made real money from music then as well right like yeah. now it's, it's you know it's not a it's not as profitable now but back then it you're making real, real money when your album went platinum. That was, um, you were done. You were set, right? Exactly. Yeah, it must have been a, yeah, imagine going from that, you know, council house. Um, you know, they, you know, they had an abusive father in the house that left when they were quite young. And the next thing you know, you, you know, you, you debut albums, the fastest selling debut album in the UK of all time. You know, that's, and uh, I think it was, um, I think they'd only been going for like a couple of years before the album came out. You know, like it wasn't, um, they weren't a band that, were chasing it for a long, long time. They kind of like formed a band and a few months later had some songs and a few months after that got signed and a few months after that blew up. You know, I think it was a relatively quick, quick process. Mm. Um, and it, yeah, Liam Gallagher would have been 21, 22 when that was all happening. And I kind of think what I was up to at 21, 22, I don't think I could have handled any sort of, um, mm. you know, any level of that scrutiny, I think. Yeah, I think, yeah, any any age really, but especially like you say, <laughs> At that period of time, that would be enough just to completely mess up anyone, I think. So, yeah, I guess when you factor all that in, you could be a little bit more forgiving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. yeah. But what do you make of them then as, as sort of songwriters? Um, what's your sort of feel of them? Are you sort of inspired by what they do? or? Um, I, I mean, I think some of the things, the Oasis songs, some of, the, of Noel's songs are like, like classics, you know, the mm. ones that will always get played at weddings and you know that sort of that sort of stuff you know like there's all, always going to be someone walking down the aisle to Wonderwall or having it played as a first dance or they you know they they just they they are yeah. become those those songs i think he's he had that golden patch as a songwriter where every time he strummed his guitar i think he wrote a hit you know they were um he was absolutely uh, for a while he was just he was just on it and now I do feel like there is a formula. I mean, who am I to say? Do you know what I mean? I've never, I've never written an album, but um, I do feel like I said. You know, I could probably predict what's going to happen on his new record, and I'd be 
confident I'd get it quite right. Um, but yeah, as, as like a guitar player, it was something that I really, um, and I, I say it because I noticed the guitars in your background there, so you're mm. clearly a, a keen guitarist. <laughs> but um, it, his guitar playing I always kind of really, really liked because I think, how's the best way to say it? Some people learn guitar and some people play guitar, you know? So like Jimi Hendrix played guitar. Johnny yeah. Marr plays guitar. Yeah. Some people learn guitar. And it, they're still very good, still very technically good, mm-hmm. but it, they, it hasn't got that freedom to it. And yeah. Noel Gallagher doesn't play guitar, he learned guitar. So when you're a young, a young lad coming up, yeah. you know, it was because of them that I got my first guitar and they were the songs that I started to play. And I've got the hang of them relatively quickly. And the yeah. first solo I ever learned was an Oasis solo. And I was able to do that long before I was ever thinking like, oh, I might try that, you know, Hendrix riff. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Yeah. So it's great. It's musically, it's great, but it's not technical, if that makes sense. And considering he's not a, a technically, you know, an incredible guitarist, that's not to say he's not proficient, but he isn't like, he isn't known as a guitarist. He's done very well to sell the amount of records he has, considering it's, it's you know, it's quite quite basic, shall we say. Yeah, I agree with that. That's probably another reason why I didn't get into them, because I had to rally against the, uh, uh, the the very common thing you run into when you're a, a young teenager learning guitar, which is, play Wonderwall. And he goes, no. <laughs> <laughs> Out of principle, no. Yeah. <laughs> even, I though, even though it's a perfectly good song. <laughs> Yeah, no, I know what you mean. I remember being sat in a bar once with a, a mate of mine called Sean, who's a very, very good guitarist. And out of nowhere, a guitar came out and someone started playing Wonderwall. And he turned around to me and he said, he said, anyone who plays Wonderwall in public should have their hands chopped off. And that's, that's, that's always stayed with me. But it is, it's almost like a rite of passage, isn't it? Is it like yeah. playing, playing Wonderwall at a party or something? And then uh, yeah. maybe, a, maybe a year on thinking, yeah, I'm not doing that anymore. But do you know what? It's one of those silly, snobbish things that guitarists run into. Um, yeah, especially, like you say, you get more and more into it when you start playing more. Is Yeah, people look down on stuff like this. Like for me, my entry band, my first proper band I got obsessed with was Green Day. Oh, and, and like Oasis, it's one of those like, yeah, when you learn guitar, you learn five chords of the cage system and the teacher goes, cool, now you can play all those songs you love. And I'm like, sweet. You know, so, <laughs> but do you know what? It's funny because it reminds me of the conversation I had with Ellie about the Beatles. It's like, I'd argue the Beatles are more technical, some of their stuff, but there's still a lot of simplicity. And when I think about the most sort of successful bands, the biggest bands in the world, they're not always the most technical. They're not always the people that can do the stuff that's totally mind-blowing. And you go, how do you do that? And yeah, it's decades of practice. It's just people that know how to, I think, say something from the heart. And you think about like the you know, now, if you go and look at the most successful, if we're talking about this genre, you know, like rock and roll songs that have ever been, you can probably count on one hand the number of them that have really like difficult guitar parts or drum parts, because that's not what we're there for. You know, we're there for the stuff that grabs you, that kind of like you say is either a soundtrack to your youth or it's something that you're out with your mates and you can sing along to at a gig, something that just hits you, and if it's Three or four chords on an acoustic. I mean, I just think, does that is that any less impressive than say, like like you said, like a Hendrix or you know someone that truly is a master of their craft? And I argue, no. I think actually, it's I say they're on the same level. 
Yeah, you know? yeah, definitely. I always think of like simple music, like some of the Beatles stuff, some of yeah. the Oasis stuff. It's really hard to write a simple song. Like if yeah. you try and write an easy song, it's probably going to sound more like a limerick or, yeah. you know, like it's probably going to sound rubbish. There is a real art to that simplicity. Yeah, definitely. And it's not to be understated at all. And quite often things sound quite, I find with Oasis, things sound quite simple on the surface, but when you really listen to it, you know, like there's a lot of like just really subtle things in there, you know, like little mm. riffs, little licks, little bass lines that, you know, they, you can tell that they've sat into the studio and they're using, you know, 24 channels, you know, just recorded all these like little, little parts and stuff like that. So it's, you know, maybe it's not as, uh, not as, it's bits of it are simple and bits of it aren't, I suppose, maybe I'm saying. Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. I mean, so I'm just looking through their, some of their discography now and I mean, pretty much every album in terms of the number of songs they've put on it, you're in the double figures, which that's no small effort. You know, that, that takes some serious doing. That's a, like you say, a lot of time in the studio and trying to work things out and yeah. putting things together. I think from from 2002, which is when Heathen Chemistry came out and they had their big sort of lineup change or even no, before that, probably 2001, Stand on the Shoulders of Giants was mm. when the original members had gone. And I think for that album, they... I'm not quite sure if they'd had the lineup in the studio or if it was the live lineup that then became the band. But around about that time when they got the two new members, um, Gem Archer and Andy Bell, mm. then things changed musically for them because those two lads could play. And right. you can hear it in, there's a, they were allowed to write songs, which had never happened in that band before. Other people started contributing songs. So there was a bit of a different sound, a bit of a different flavour stuff that you think, oh, that's not that Oasis-y, and that it was because it wasn't written by Noel. But I think mm. they all had to, and probably Noel Gallagher himself probably had to, like, step up his little play. You can't play with better guitarists and not get better. You, you know, that's how you get better, right, is you jam with people who are better than you, and that's exactly. you, get dragged, you get dragged along. And um, the live show changed around then, and, yeah, it was a bit of a, I don't know, it's almost like a, an era within the <laughs> within the era of albums, I think. I think that's totally, totally fair. I mean, I'm just looking through there now, and yeah, he's still got some pretty good, pretty good tracks. And it's a lot shorter, but I guess that's why, right? Because yeah, they just probably packed more in. And I mean, I'm yeah. curious did, did you um, did you make a point of learning a lot of their songs then as you were sort of coming up? Yeah, I, I that was always it's kind of what got me into guitar, and then yeah, just I just kind of learned everything <laughs> as much as as much as possible really and like i said you know so it's not overly complicated um no. it's great great for beginners great for beginners but then you know you have to have something to progress along don't you as you as you learn and um totally. yeah I, I used to spend a lot of time and just for kicks as well because i love the records you know like if i needed to pass a couple of hours in the afternoon i'll just press play on definitely maybe and just just play along with it the best i could in order you know for the record um, just trying to hop in and out of different parts of it on my own. And um, yeah, it's just a way to pass a couple of hours. But yeah, I, I don't know. It's something about when you really love a band, isn't it? It's a way to get into the music. It's a way to get even closer to that to that band and to that that feeling, that expression from the music, I think. Absolutely. And as far as like you know, being accessible and what you're saying there, I think that's so great. And that's one of the best ways to learn as well as an instrument as... Is to yeah to pick up a record of, of something you like, and if it is something as simple as this, and 
brilliant. You know, it's got that accessible quality to it. And I think that makes music so much more fun because, you know, as you were saying earlier, like the technical stuff, anyone who knows, you know, that side of, of learning music, it's very tricky. It's a lot of dedication and time and technique and focusing. And I greatly admire the people that can do that. But for those of us that just want to have some fun, you know, you don't want to sit there for hours with a metronome just doing scales and <laughs> all the rest of it. You want to just like, yeah, I'm going to stick on an Oasis record. I'm just going to jam along. And the thing is, you do get better mm. from doing that. You know, there's there's no that's not necessarily a wrong way to learn, I think. No, very much so. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, I don't know. It's just great to if there's something that you love musically, it's just great to. Yeah, it's just explore it in that way, I suppose, you know, and just spend that that time in it, especially with a band that from the 90s, you know, like pre-social media, like yeah. bands were not accessible at all. So, no. you know, if they were in the NME or if they were on Q magazine or if they were on, you know, if they had a um, like a, I don't know, an album out, maybe there'd be a Jules Holland special and they'd do a little 20 minute interview in between the songs or something. But on the whole, you know, you weren't on their Instagram, like following them around London on their story. Like you can, mm. <laughs> I'm making myself sound really, really old now. Back in, <laughs> back in my day, Harley. But you know, there wasn't that, you know, like you, you just didn't have. So when you got something, when they, when an enemy came out or an, like a, a new album came out, it was like such a big, big deal and learning to play them was another way of getting into it because they do like you know however many interviews for the album and you just read them and then that was it you know you like that was it that was the knowledge that you then had until they did another interview you know so uh yeah it's just i suppose for me it was always trying to find different ways to kind of like get more into this band yeah and i think when you're in that situation i feel like you you treasure things a lot more you know i i feel like it, we're in a weird place right now with music where like like last year, for example, in a, in a lockdown, so for me, so many amazing albums came out. I was it was I was spoiled for choice, basically. <laughs> My favorite artists, but I'm not gonna lie, I, d I don't feel like I appreciated them as much. Like as one or two, I really had to say to myself, right, I'm just gonna sit down and listen to this, you know, and really take it in. Or like one of my favorite things at the minute is to is to put an album on when I'm in the gym because I feel like I can focus and I can listen. Because it's so easy now just to flick through. And like you say, then you can go on social media. And if you, if you like them, you can go, oh, I'm going to follow them. You can learn everything. And you just burn through it. Yeah. And you, I don't think you take a moment to stop and value it. Whereas, as you say, at this particular era, an album comes out and everyone's got it. And everyone at your school or your college or whatever is talking about it. And you're sharing it. And, you know, you get the album and you're able to flick through the lyric book. And that sort of era, I was at the tail end of that. You know, I remember getting albums and... Like, that was it. That was my album. I'm going to listen to this over and over and over. And like you say, learn and play and get into it. So I think it's really cool that this is a band that was part of that sort of generation. And I mean, I'm just looking now and it, it seems like they kind of stopped at the point where all that stopped. Their last studio album was 2008, I think. Is that right? Yeah. Dig Out Your Soul, 2008. Yeah. yeah. I, had, um, I had tickets to see. I was working in Italy in 2008 and... Wow, we okay. um we had tickets to see him in Milan Ooh. on the, on the tour of that that um you know that album and they played in Paris like two or three nights before that and that's when they had the big fight and split up oh, no. and uh, yeah and then we kind of had to like got emails saying oh they're not 
they're not playing. And we still went anyway because it was a really good bill. Um, Kasabian supported and the Kooks and nice. Twisted Wheel. Um, and it, rather than bump Kasabian up to headline because they weren't as big then, um, they roped in last minute Deep Purple, which was quite, uh, yeah. So I don't know what Deep Purple were doing where someone could just ring them and say, can you be in Milan in two days to play a, a festival, like a day festival? Um, so yeah, we went, we went anyway. I didn't see Deep Purple because the plan was, because we had no way of getting back to where we were working. So okay. if it was if it was Oasis, we were going to stay up all night and get the first train back. But because I'm not that fussed with Deep Purple after um, after like, after the before the headliner we could get the last train back so i came home but um yeah that's that's always my memory of oasis splitting up it was like oh man could they not have just hung on another three days yeah yeah oh i can't imagine that and i mean i've recently had a couple of shows rescheduled um i can't make them and that that's annoying enough but yeah i can't imagine that like you're gearing up to go to another place just to see them and it's like uh nah they've had a fight (laughs) I mean, did you at least get the chance to to see them before that? Yeah, some a few times. Oh, yeah, good, some good. Some a few times. They were the first gig I ever went to. Oh, brilliant. Tell me about that. 2000, that was. Um, okay. 2000, 2001. It was on the Familiar to Millions tour. Mm-hmm. And they were touring around about the time they released Standing on the Shoulders of Giants. Yeah. And they did um, two nights at Wembley. One of the nights they released as a live album. Oh, yeah. And um, so I went on the stat. The live album was recorded on the Friday. I went down to London on the Saturday, and it was a really, really big deal. Like getting tickets for this thing. There was loads of us that went. Like I had this, like my, um, like all these, like how old would I have been? Nineteen maybe. Mm. So this big group of us that all knocked about together, and we all went down. And we all had to try and get tickets, and obviously no internet. It was getting on the phone, so we'd have to like dial the number. Oh, engaged ring back ring back ring back for about two hours on a saturday morning or something and we all got tickets and yeah went down on the <laughs> went down on the coach yeah down to london i lived in lowestoft at the time on the um on the east coast in east anglia so it was a long long old trek for us and um yeah who supported happy monday supported and uh doves supported doves were just blowing up then as well and um yeah, it was a good day it was a terrible gig but it was a really really good <laughs> good day yeah they they were awful they were really bad really yeah it was one of they played on the it was on this is how big oasis were even at that time right it was live on sky and we didn't have sky because we were poor but my mum asked a friend to record it for us on there because it was like live on sky one or something like that yeah and they did it on the friday and the saturday and the friday got recorded and released as familiar to millions which is a really good live album and then the Saturday, um, Liam was so drunk and they were like um, bickering with each other on stage. Oh, no. And um, yeah, he wasn't like, his voice wasn't great. And um, it was uh, it was really fun to be at. So there was that whole thing of being at Wembley. It was the old Wembley before they knocked it down. 75,000 people, first ever gig. You know, I'm with all my best mates, like having a drink, singing Oasis at the top of your lungs. Like, that's what Oasis are for, basically. That's yeah. why that band was invented, was to watch them in stadiums with your best mates when you've had a couple of beers. Yeah. And um, so that bit of it was good. But then, like, it wasn't it wasn't great <laughs> performance-wise. It wasn't good at all. Particularly out of the, um, the Friday was so good, and they released it as an album, you know. But, uh, yeah, one of, one of them. It was part, all part of the experience. That's, the, that's another thing with seeing that band. You never knew what you were going to get. You know, right. you never knew whether they were going to be amazing or whether they were going to be awful. And I saw him a few times and that was the only time I saw him awful. But Wow. I mean, I, yeah, I guess you went back for more and it sounds like the others were, were decent then at least. 
Yeah, yeah. I saw him in a few different, a few different places, a few different countries. I used to like fly to go and see him and like travel to go and see him. I did nice. a lot of work, a lot of work through Europe through my twenties, and obviously they were touring different albums at different times. So um, I saw him in Italy, um, not the Milan time before that, about ten years before that. Um, I saw him in oh, Treviso Football Stadium, and I saw him in Barcelona once. Um, and I've seen Noel on his own a few times as well. Um, so yeah, I was quite, you know, I was quite, quite into him in that way. Yeah. That's awesome. I gotta say that's one of the best, like first gig stories I've ever heard. <laughs> just, <laughs> that's amazing. You're there the day after the live album and it's terrible. And it's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's really, it's really bad. Yeah. I've heard stories. I've been really, really fortunate with live gigs. I can't think of any for the headliner where I've come away and gone, Oh dear. You know, I've, I've seen one or two. It's like, mm, you know, not as good or maybe a little lackluster, but never like that. Like, yeah. I mean, I think my first one was Green Day. That was, yeah. First band I got into, first tour, I saw them all. And that, it was just a lot of fun. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, I, I, I'd always sort of thought Oasis would be one of those live bands that would be really solid. But I, I guess, as you say, you don't know what you're getting into. And Yeah, I think the day after, I remember seeing in all the tabloids and stuff that, Liam had been spotted in the in the pubs during the day on that Saturday during the ah. day with like um like that was when he was uh with one of the All Saints one of the Appleton sisters and he was spotted in the pub with her and a couple of Spice Girls or something very nineties you know like very yes. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> stereotypically nineties and that that was how we built up for the for the day and I do remember right. um just being sort of like sat on the floor in the afternoon it was really yeah. really warm and the Happy Mondays were on stage and they're a band that like they just they're okay they're not my cup of tea but they really don't need to be playing like Wembley they're not a stadium band they haven't got the sound for it and it wasn't great but then halfway through the set Liam ran on stage and we were just sat on the floor oh. talking and then all of a sudden everyone just went Way! and you looked around and he ran on stage and gave Sean Ryder a kiss and then ran back off stage and that you kind of thought like oh, I think I know what gonna what sort oh, okay. of afternoon, afternoon yeah. we're gonna have now but uh, right yeah but there was a fun it was a fun day out you know and a good a good memory yeah that's certainly sound. i mean that is a hell of a story to have <laughs> absolutely amazing um i actually don't know where to go from there i'm kind of like just trying to process that <laughs> oh my goodness i mean here's a question i i do wonder this sometimes because we've talked about them they're doing their solo things they both seem pretty happy with what they've got do you ever think we'll see them like team up one day, even just for like a one-off gig or tour, even just like a one-off, like we're going to go to Wembley, we're going to do like three nights, see yeah. you there. Do you reckon that'll ever happen? I don't think so. No. I don't think so. No, I think Liam would do it in a heartbeat. I think that's yeah. all he's ever wanted. That's all he's, he's, with all the abuse he gives his brother online and stuff, that's all he wants is just mm. for Noel to say, let's do it. But um, I, I think like, just as a fan of someone, you know, reading the articles and watching the documentaries and it, it just seemed like Noel got to a point where he just had enough. And right. now he's, he's really, ha he's making the music he always wanted to make. And he works with the same, like um, the same engineers and the same sound people and the same, you know, and they're all his mates and they were his mates. A lot of them were in Oasis. Game Archer is in Oasis, plays guitar in his band. And they always did the interviews together. You could tell that they were like, you know, thick as thieves and, he kind of like, he must have a really nice life, you know, just 
making his records, you know, just like pottering about with his mates in the studio when he feels like it. And, you know, he's got the money. He made the most money out of all of them and he doesn't need to do it financially. Um, mm. And actually, do you know what? I wouldn't want him to. I wouldn't no? want him to. No, I kind of, I, a lot of the bands that I really love when they've fallen out of each other, if it's like a long-term thing, I don't want to see them go back on their words. You know, I don't, I love the Smiths. I don't want to see the Smiths. I don't want to see Morrissey and Ma play together. You know, like, I don't know. It just feels like really authentic to say like, I really don't like this person anymore. We've grown apart and that's it. To, I don't know. There's something I quite like about drawing that line in the sand and then saying, no, it's done. That's an end of an era. It's done. It doesn't have to be this constant thing of nostalgia. Like what Oasis going to do if they get back together they're going to play the same set that Liam's playing now on his own with his yeah. vocal. <laughs> you know, it's not going to be that much. It's not going to be that much different, really. Um, I don't know what they'd do, you know. I, I would would imagine that if they did music together again, it wouldn't be very good, you know, maybe. <laughs> Perhaps. Controversial. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot, a lot of bands that get back together, very few of them, like, make, can you know, find that spark again, mm. you know. No, I, do I, know, don't I think, think I think you're right. It's one of those things. It's especially when it's like a generational thing. You know, like you say, you're, you're part of this movement, this era. You're you're in the thick of it. To almost like try and recapture that lightning in a bottle can be so tricky. I mean, I, an example that immediately springs to my head, and I say this with all the love and respect in the world, is Guns and Roses. Because <laughs> completely, <laughs> because completely, you know, they're another one. Like you know massive biggest band in the world brought out some absolutely amazing albums and it all fell apart and they're kind of back together now and I, I will say this like they brought out two singles last year i don't know if you've heard them but mm. like they're decent you look at here yeah. and you go oh this feels like old appetite stuff you know it's got that vibe and axel's learned how to sing again which is nice um because if anyone doesn't know just look up his reading performance of like i think it was 2011 2010 it's wow but he's all right now. Um, but again, it's like, if anyone's a fan of Slash, like me, he's one of my favorite musicians, you'll know that he's been doing albums with Miles Kennedy, who happens to be one of my favorite singers. And I went and saw them live. And for their first album, they used half of their set list was just old GNR songs. And my dad came with me and he was like, Do you know what? That was just as good. Like that was, that's like just being back at, you know, in a, in a venue in like the late 80s, early 90s, watching Guns N' Roses. And so now it's like, well, you can go and see Guns N' Roses. Yeah, but I'm going to pay like five times as much in a ticket. Yeah. And it's like, I could just go and watch Slash's band with Miles. And they've also got some really good original stuff. So I suppose it's kind of like that with Oasis now. It's like, yeah, I could just go and watch Liam do all the yeah. hits. And probably a few originals, which I quite like as well, if, you know, if you're into that scene. So... Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I guess you're right. Maybe that's just, yeah, draw a line under it and leave it. Yeah, I just don't think there's a need. And I think if the, you know, if you had a band that you really, really loved right. and they weren't necessarily big, like then they'd come back and it would be very exciting for them to come back and do something. But because Oasis and like Guns N' Roses, they're that big. Yeah. You, the music never went away, even though the, the band did and the live performance did. So you kind of feel like you've heard it. And there's some yeah. amazing, you could go and see like a cover band in a pub and it would sound exactly like it because there's songs are that ingrained in popular culture that, you know, anyone can kind of, you know, people can make, can sound the same, like you say. And I just kind of feel like, I don't know. It's, 
I'm not keen on bands doing anything for money, you know? If you know what, if they had like an amazing if they found their muse and was creating a masterpiece like a then yeah, go for it. But if you're just doing it to cash in, you know, but mm. sometimes it works. Sometimes it works. You know, I always um I went to see a couple of years ago or a few years ago, about five. I went to go and see the Stone Roses. I saw them a couple of times when they briefly got back together and they were quite a big band for me coming up. And it was brilliant. You know, I'd yeah. never seen them. I didn't get to see them when they were in their, in their prime because they spent nearly all their prime in a recording studio <laughs> making an album for seven years. But, um, it, you know, it was brilliant. It was a really good, it was fun, you know, and sometimes, you know, sometimes that's, a, that's enough, isn't it? You know, just do it because it's fun, I suppose. Don't have to get too muso about it. <laughs> No, no, I suppose not. And I mean, they've left an incredible legacy behind. Again, we just think about how much they impacted the world with, you know, in like a decade of music. That's, I don't know, I feel like you said, so not very many people can say that really. Mm. I think that's something that people forget about them is how big that they were, you know, yeah. like how massive that band were. You know, the paparazzi would be like camped outside their houses. I remember Liam Gallagher, he walked off a tour or something and he was like the opening thing on the 10 o'clock news, like with the, you know, with the bongs, you know, the first, the big story of the day was the Oasis's tour going wrong in America. You know, they were massive. And again, because now just on your Instagram feeds, you get the headlines from every single newspaper, every single magazine, loads of magazines you've never heard of or you never will again. You kind of know everything all the time, but they were that big that they were making the the news at 10, they were, you know, they were absolutely everywhere. And I think, I don't know, there's something quite nice about just leaving that there in that moment, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Because like you say, it's all part of that sort of cultural movement that happens around a band. And yeah, it feels like that doesn't really happen anymore. You know, it feels like bands sort of can, you can be like the biggest selling artist in the world. You know, I mean, oh, top of my head, I saw like Adele, for example, just, you know, she yeah. brought an album last year and it's like, oh, it's a you know, massive album and it's all like Ed Sheeran or whatever, you know, these sort of massive pop artists that, you know, numbers wise, they probably do similar, right? In terms of how many albums they sell yeah. and they're on the radio and everything. But I don't know anyone who, coming back to what you said at the start, you know, would dress a certain way because they're an Adele fan or because they're an Ed Sheeran fan or, you know, like th that doesn't really happen anymore. That doesn't seem to be like this pop cultural movement around a band or an artist it's just like you like them and you go yeah cool then you move on yeah no it's so true isn't it no one's like you say no one's you know yeah trying to grow a i don't know a chris martin haircut or something you <laughs> yeah, know exa like, yeah exactly it yeah, doesn't yeah. happen yeah i think like when you mentioned before about like uh, how music's how so accessible it is i think that's a huge part of it you don't have to work for your records anymore you know yeah. like I mean, again, I'm going to sound really old here, Ali, but, you know, if I wanted a CD, I just have to save up when I had that paper out. You know, oh, CDs were like 14, same. 18 quid, you know. and Same here, man. Yeah. And then when you got it, you got no choice but to get into it. You know, I, I remember being so excited for a record and then getting it home and listening to it and thinking, oh, no, I don't think I like it. Like, what? What do you mean? Like, I, I won't buy another record for two or three weeks. Like, I have to like it. But then spending time getting into it you know yeah. spending that time with that record sometimes for a record to hit you need to hear it at two in the morning sometimes you need to hear it when you're going for a walk sometimes you need to hear it really loud at a gig you know like it, it mm. you have to find a way for the these albums to to grab hold of you and we don't get that now you listen to the intro and kind of go yeah sounds all right i might get back to it later or you can skip straight to another straight to the single or 
you know, by the time you've bought an album or downloaded an album, you might have even heard it all, you know, whereas like I'd bought, I'd buy an album because I liked the cover, you know, because <laughs> yeah. the NME gave it nine out of 10 and that never happened. So I'd right, well, I've got to hear this record, you know, like mm. it, it was so much, you had to work so much harder for your music. Whereas now it's, it is a little bit sort of, you know, expendable is not the right words, but yeah, you can kind of, yeah, it's too easy, isn't it? Don't have to don't have to work as hard for it. I mean, there's a lot of advantages to it as well, you know. There's good things about it. But well, yeah, yeah, and that, that's kind of the thing, isn't it? Is I agree. It's it's nice because you've got access to stuff like you know. Again, I had a massive bump of amazing albums and bands I discovered in the last year. But you do you also feel a little bit for the artists because they're putting so much hard work into it, and especially in like the era that we've just gone through, you know, with, with lockdowns and stuff. It's you know, bands, I think all arts and all business, you know, that, the, well, sorry, the business around art shifts constantly. You know, how a band behaves like in Oasis Hero is completely different now because, yeah, like you said, it wasn't the case of, oh, you get signed, you go on massive tours and you make loads of money. You now have to do it in different ways. You have to do it through merch or streaming or, you know, you have to adapt and evolve. So I do think that side of it makes it harder for musicians as much as, now they can be more accessible. It's easier. Someone can sit at home, produce an album completely on their own, put it out there. Brilliant. But, you know, you're also doing it at the time when there's like thousands of other artists doing yeah. the same thing. And yeah. How do you stand out? How do you get someone's yeah. attention? Yeah. I, th I think the answer is you just have to keep adapting and evolving. And, you know, some people use social media, they use streaming, they use all sorts of other things to build a platform. So yeah. in, in some ways I think it's really cool, but... Yeah, I can relate to what you're saying. I mean, I'm I'm still somebody who's got like a drawer full of CDs that I had when I was a teenager. And I, even though I've got all of those albums saved on my phone, <laughs> I just don't want to throw them out because I'm like, ah, uh, but that was, a, that was a special time. You know, like yeah. you said, when you, you went to HMV or whatever and you were like, oh, I've, this album, I really want this album and I've saved up my money and I'm going to buy it and I'm going to listen to it and I'm going to get really stuck in and look at all the artwork. And I do feel like, that is something that I do miss. And I hope, mm. like a lot of things, I'm sure it will swing back around into fashion at some point, you know, like vinyl, for example, a lot of people like to do that, don't they? Yeah. They'll, they'll get yeah. they'll get like, okay, I've listened to 20 albums on streaming, but this one, this one I really love. So I'm going to go and buy that on vinyl, spend 20 quid and sit with it. You know, I still mm. think there is a, there's a generation out there that does do that. Yeah, I think something as well with the, the streaming and the downloading it that's really good is the um the kind of the reissues and the remasters and stuff like that yeah, you know yeah. like when they a band uh remasters an album for an anniversary or something i was recently listening um in the build-up for this some of the ones that oasis brought out and um mm. some of the like the extras on there are incredible and you think like you know again how like bootlegs would get passed around me and my mates you know there'd be these like battered copies of something that someone got when they went to camden market once or something you know it's and then to suddenly have all this like stuff to geek out on you know acoustic versions instrumentals recorded live here the version with so-and-so on bass or whatever and that's really cool you know there seems to be a lot more of um stuff coming out the archives with loads of bands when they bring out reissues or a vinyl or a different version and, and that's quite you know that's a, a new way to um to hear things i think yeah and it, and it, it kind of makes it exciting because you just think even if a band has gone away like these guys 
you never know. There might be something that comes out of the vault, so to speak. And yeah, you get these little demos or extras and you kind of go, oh, and you get like a little extra. I mean, hell, the Beatles just had a documentary brought out, with, you know, directed by <laughs> Peter Jackson. And you think about that and there's like, you know, hours and hours of footage of them making their final album. And like, I, I haven't got around to watching it yet, but I've heard a lot of people say just how amazing it is to sort of sit in the room with them and watch them and I, yeah you never know maybe something like that might come out from oasis you might be like oh yeah here's a, a little mini documentary of us making a record i mean how cool would that be you know to get yeah, even yeah. more insight more stuff yeah there's um there's a the supersonic documentary that came out a couple of years ago that's on netflix mm. at the moment that's a really that's good right. watch yeah yeah and what amazed me about that this footage of them at their early gigs, you know, before they had a record deal, even before Noel was in the band, you know, so like 91, 92, maybe something like that. And there's actual video footage and you're thinking, who had a video camera then? Yeah. Like, who was walking into the Manchester boardwalk with like some great big box on their shoulder? You know? <laughs> but um, yeah. yeah, but it's, it's like quite interesting to, interesting to see. But I think that about a lot of bands that I love, I think, oh, imagine like, imagine what got left on the, on the cutting room floor, you know, especially some of these, I'm a big fan of Bob Dylan. I'm a big fan of Neil Young and these, right. with that, the recording attitude of like, let's just press record and play for a week and see yeah. what comes out. And then they select some of that and you think, oh my gosh, that, you know, some of these like incredible songs, you know, there could be another incredible song that could have changed the world and it just never quite made it at the time or they didn't have the mics rolling or it's just, I, I love that aspect of, of music. Mm. yeah exactly and i think that there's something as well in bands that sort of coming back to what we were saying earlier with the simplicity of their writing they can access that you know there's lots of famous stories of bands doing that where they're just strumming idly and and then you know producer just suddenly goes oh hang on a sec grabs a mic and you can put it in and it just works because it has that kind of rawness and i know oasis are one of those bands because of the nature of what they do yeah, you could probably could put together some demos or B-sides or things or hell, even just a whole song just from things like that of just something that happens in the moment in the room and they can go, right, we can capture this easily. Whereas it's a bit of a disadvantage if you're more of a technical <laughs> band because you go, right, what did you just do? Hang on, I have to replicate it and we have to, oh, <laughs> I don't know about this. Uh, and then the moment's gone, you know. <laughs> yeah, I heard a, um, a story, I read a story somewhere in, in a book I read about Nick McCabe from The Verve and mm. they were a big band for me back in the day and Nick McCabe's one of my favourite guitarists. And um, right. they say so when he walked in the studio, they turned every mic on because he would just, just every time he picked up a guitar, yeah. something would come out. And the amount of times they'd say to him, what was that? And he'd just go, oh, I don't know. I was just kind of, <laughs> I was just messing around, like, you know, <laughs> waiting for my turn. <laughs> so they started whenever he got in a studio, just turning everything on, just on the off chance to just catch some Nick McCabe gold. Yeah, I quite like the idea of that. It's genius. It's, it's how some of the most, I think, famous and best songs ever, you know, have, have come out in the most iconic moments. I mean, I'll harking back to one of, uh my own episodes the only one i've ever done solo which uh was a tribute to eddie van halen and famously like eruption was just recorded because he was that was him noodling around believe it or not the wow. producer just heard him doing it and was like we need to record this and he's like what it's just my warm-up they're like yeah we still need to record it you know and then it just changed the world of guitar forever just because some producer had the bright idea to go that's that's good i love it let's stick it in Oh, man, so, it's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, Nirvana's another one. I think Something in the Way famously was just 
Kurt Cobain lying on a sofa, strumming That's and singing right, to himself. Yeah. And hence why it's 20 minutes long, because <laughs> there's like a 10 minute gap of silence where he just got up and was like, right, where's the rest of the band? And you can kind of <laughs> hear them in the background, just like getting everything set up and then just going nuts at the end. And, like, and you think had they wouldn't have caught that had mm. somebody not just gone, oh, hang on a second microphone let's just see what happens and yeah yeah, yeah. So there is something, something about that isn't there there is and knowing when to leave it alone you yes. know knowing when yeah. to say that's it that's the take you know we don't need to you know bring anyone else in or go back to the studio or you, know, you mm. mentioned axel rose before would it take him like 19 years <laughs> to get that to get that that album out you know oh, there is, good lord yeah there's, there's something about just saying right that's it that's you know that is yeah. the take we are done yeah <laughs> yeah Chinese democracy is a bit of a uh, black spot for for many a hard rock fan, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think so, yeah. I was always uh, a bit gutted when it did come out because it was like, oh, I kind of thought, you know, the, the yeah. story's better if you never saw it, you know, and then and it comes out and it's like below average at best. I know. And the uh, people involved as well, When if, if you're a musician, like look into who he brought on because he brought on some absolutely phenomenal like guitar players and bass players and drummers. And it just sounds like, trash <laughs> it's, just like, it's, just it's almost a waste it's almost impressive isn't it you're almost like how did you make it sound that bad well the answer is overproducing <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah so yeah he must have just i don't know just just kept going back to it and back to it and back to it and yeah as a, you know crikey i i think so i mean uh, it's uh, slightly off topic but i i know famously um if you listen to like the use your illusions albums a lot of the string stuff is actually synths. Um, and you can kind of tell when you listen to it. But that was, I think of something like November Rain, for example. You think of how much stuff is going on in that song. That's Axel sitting in a studio, just adding layer after layer after. And that's a rare example of where it works. You're like, okay, it's, it's an epic ballad and you've got Slasher Solo and all this other stuff. But yeah, when you do that unchecked for 20 years, <laughs> you get to Chinese democracy. <laughs> That's it. And I have no interest in what's on that cutting room floor. No, been, no. We don't need remasters or reissues or yeah. you lads just carry on playing the hits and charging 150 quid a ticket and leave yeah. it at that. If that's what you want to do, that's fine. Uh, um, so, it's, so, probably, it's probably paying yeah. off that studio bill. That's why he's going to have such expensive <laughs> tickets. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I know, I know they did well, but crikey, that's a long time to have studios and producers and stuff on on your beck and call night and day oh exactly yeah so so yeah maybe it's better that oasis just leave it at that and don't try and come back with some big crazy epic we've been working on the secretly for 10 years album <laughs> <laughs> you just never live up to it right they could never no. live up to it. they could only ever do live live shows but... i suppose that's it right because it's been I think since 2008 yeah so that's that's 14 years now wow that's scary. You can imagine if they turn around and say, we're coming back, we're doing an album. The hype behind that would just be insane. There was, there'd be no way to live up to it, would there? No, no. Maybe like a, I don't know, like a Glastonbury headliner or something really. Uh, yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, maybe. But you couldn't, yeah. you couldn't do another album of originals because it's just like you, you've, you've topped out. It's been yeah. 14 years. <laughs> yeah, that's it. No one wants to hear. Yeah, you kind of forget as well, like, I don't know. Noel Gallagher must be getting on a little bit, you know. Like yeah. I remember when I was when I was young and like buying their records as they come out, and I would look at people like Bob Dylan and Neil Young and be like, "Oh my God, they're like proper old," but they're <laughs> probably now, you know, they're probably a similar age to what 
Noel Gallagher is now. I mean, he must be 50, you know? Sure, I'm going to yeah. look this up. I want to know and, how... You know, hey, 50 yeah. not old, you know what I mean? No, uh, I'm not getting ageist here, but, um, you know, after 50 comes 55 and then 60 and then you're in Rolling Stones territory and, you know, that's that's old in rock and roll, right? That is. No, you're bang on, mate. Yeah, he's, he's 54 years old, according to this, so... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's... When do you, when do you stop, you know? <laughs> really... <laughs> It's supposed to be a young man's game, isn't it? Rock and rock and roll, the twenty seven club and all that. Yeah, that's that's probably why one of the many reasons why uh he's just happy to do the solo stuff and just be like, Yeah, I'm good with this. I don't need the big stadiums and the, the pressure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, that's mate. awesome, man. Um I'm curious, Tom, is is there anything else you wanted to sort of bring out about Oasis? No, not really. I I can geek out on them. On them pretty <laughs> pretty hard um but no not not particularly i don't have any uh you know interesting facts or any uh anything oh, like cool. that i'll tell you if anyone's listening wants a really good book recommendation right it's called mm. forever the people and okay. oh what's the guy's name i think it might be paolo hewitt i think so he wrote a lot of books about oasis and if it isn't him it's it's um but it's definitely called forever the people and the journalist went on tour with oasis when they t- did the world tour for be here now which at the time because before it was a flop it was yeah. it, it's one of those rare albums that sold gazillions and then everyone realized it wasn't very good like no one <laughs> like no, normally bands flop the other way round you yeah, know they yeah. people say oh that's not so great maybe i won't buy it but be here now was huge and it was only a few months afterwards that people sort of went oh maybe it's not their best work but um, that tour was just bonkers. And the journalist went round the world with them on the bus and on the planes and wrote about his experiences. And I've never chatted to that many people who have read it, um, but it's a fascinating insight into what it's like to tour the world with the biggest band of, of the world. It's quite, um, it's quite interesting. There's a lot of funny anecdotes and a lot of weird things happen, as you'd expect. And um, it's a really interesting insight into the into the two brothers in particularly i think so yeah there's a book recommendation if, uh, if anyone listening wants to go for a deep dive brilliant yeah i just found it I'll, I'll put some links in the show notes for people to check that out because yeah. that does sound cool i mean that's the kind of thing you almost want right it's like a fly on the wall kind of experience yeah yeah very much so kind of like a bit sort of a bit spinal tap but um yeah <laughs> yeah loads yeah. of like there's loads of just weird like um little snippets of conversations and i think like uh at one point liam gets in a fight with manny from primal scream and in another bit they end up in johnny depp's house playing pink floyd in the early hours and loads of just bizarre little rock and roll stories that happen cool. along along the way and yeah it's that it's yeah it's quite quite interesting yeah amazing that's quite a recommendation to uh sort of see us out on really so thank yeah that, you. that'll only be a quid or two on amazon marketplace that one that's it's yeah. been around a while that book yeah awesome well i thought i'd be what's really left to say is thank you tom for for coming on and and sharing this I, i've really enjoyed this and i personally like i said i've got all this stuff now pulled up on spotify i think i'm gonna have a good listen through and oh, have, a, have a deep dive yeah, yeah oh, I think, why not why not you know yeah oh mate i've enjoyed that so much thank you for having me mate. that was that was wicked i've i don't think we were recording when we said at the start but it's so rare these days to have a chance to really just kind of like geek out on something and um it's been an absolute absolute pleasure mate yeah thank you for having me no it's, it's pleasure's all mine so i guess really what's left to say is uh where can the good people find you tom um best place is instagram um at proper mental podcast 
is my podcast page or my own page is at Movement Restored. Um, and yeah, I've got a podcast. It's called Proper Mental and you can get it on all the usual podcast places. It's brilliant. I have to say, we were talking a little bit before and I, I think it's one of those, it's a really, uh, it's not an easy subject to talk about. You know, mental health is what your, your podcast is all about. And, you know, I think actually previous guest, yes, previous guest, Benny, who was on, has his own with his wife and, I was saying to him, same thing, really, that I feel like it's an important subject. And the approach that I think you take with your show, I think is the best way to handle it. It's very laid back, but it's also very informative because I know you, you work hard to get some really cool guests on and people with all sorts of experiences and perspectives. So if anyone out there's just interested in that sort of subject, then I'd say, yeah, go check it out and I'll be putting links in for people. Oh, mate, that's wicked. Yeah, no, that's that's the name of the game, you know, relatability. That's what that's what really helps people with, um, you know, if struggling with uh, mental health, just to kind of know that they're, they're not alone and they're not the only one experiencing those things. So, um, yeah, if anyone, anyone can hear it and kind of get that from it, then, yeah, job done, mate, job done. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Tom. Thank you, mate. Thank you very much. And there we have it. What a way to kick off the show for 2022. Thank you so much, Tom, for coming onto the podcast and sharing your love of all things Oasis with us. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, then definitely go and check out the book that he's recommended. I've put links in the show notes for that, as well as Tom's incredible podcast, The Proper Mental Podcast. As we just said, it's all about mental health. It's one of those topics I don't think you can have enough shows about, really. And Tom does an amazing job with the subject matter. Some incredible guests and insights and support, as well as resources. So if you're interested, go and follow him on the links that I provided in the show notes below. I'd also like to take this moment to give a massive thank you, as always, to our resident artist for the show, Alex. You can find his details in the show notes if you like the look of the logo for the podcast, as well as the social media banners. You can hit him up mission him for your very own artwork i cannot recommend him highly enough i'd also like to take a moment to say thank you to you dear listener if this is your first time checking out the podcast i greatly appreciate it make sure you follow or subscribe or whatever it is you have to do on your podcatcher to stay informed and stay up to date the latest episodes i try and keep this a sort of fortnightly podcast so there should be some new content for you every couple of weeks or so to that end as well, I would like to apologise for my absence for the last few weeks. I have had some technical issues, but as you can see, they're resolved. We're back up and running, and I have got a whole bunch of guests and topics coming your way. It's going to be some really, really exciting stuff coming up for 2022. So if you're not already, make sure you are subscribed or following the podcast. If you really enjoy the podcast and you'd like to say thank you, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review or rating on your favorite podcatcher. In fact, Spotify has just opened up the ability to do that on podcasts. And Tom himself was actually kind enough to leave me a five-star rating. So if you'd like to follow his steps, I believe all you have to do is go on the homepage of the show and it should be there in the top left corner. Click five stars. Let me know that you've done so because of course you'll earn a shout out on the podcast. Speaking of, I would like to give a special thank you to Cameron Harrison, who was kind enough to hop on to Podchaser and leave me a really lovely five-star review. He says, and I quote, this is a great show where the host discusses a specific fandom with their guest. The passion and knowledge shine through and the conversation is engaging and relaxed. 
but yet manages to stay focused on the topic. Pick and choose your favorite fandoms or binge every episode. It will be well worth your time. Well, thank you so much, Cameron, for your kind words. I greatly appreciate it. Again, if you'd like to follow Cameron's footsteps there, then you can do so by going on to, this is Podchaser or Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. I greatly appreciate your support. That is it from me. I'll be back again in a few weeks' time with a completely different guest on a completely different topic. So until then, stay tuned and stay safe.